Welcome to a financial planning podcast with a down-to-earth vibe. Sasquatch listens while practicing hot yoga. This is Through the Pines. On this episode, we explore the pre-retirement phase of life. So, when to start Medicare? How does Social Security work? Retirement distribution strategies. We cover these topics and more on this episode of Through the Pines. Our advisors this episode in the Banyan trailer with us from planwithbaxter.com. We have Rex Baxter, the Rex Baxter from Plan with Baxter and Brandon Smith. Looking sharp today, gentlemen. Thanks for joining us here in the trailer. You might know them as the Forbes Best in State Wealth Management Teams for Utah or the Advisor Hub Fastest Growing Advisors to Watch Under $1 billion. And they are also the receivers of the Ameriprise Client Experience Award. That means they are good at their job. So thanks so much for joining us, Rex and Brandon. Let's dive right into what we mean or what we're going to go through with pre-retirement phase of life. Uh, does that start after your, the minute you're born, Brandon? That's, <laughs> technically, yes. Technically, yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Just wanted to make sure. Yeah. But I think we have this, we said about five to 10 years out, I think is what we want to do today. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just kind of a rough idea. But but okay. yeah, as, as you start approaching retirement, because we, we had our last podcast on the accumulation phase. Um, and accumulations, you know, as you're growing and just, you know, just saving and building towards retirement, but there comes a shift, right? When, when you go from, Hey, I'm just trying to save as much as I can enjoy life, but save to where you're like, Holy cow, here comes retirement, right? It's time to get serious. It's time to understand how that transition is going to happen. And so today we wanted to go through those things on, on, you know, what things should you be considering as well as cover a couple topics that without doubt people have questions on, um, as they get ready to retire. Okay, so we will start with Medicare. When can I start Medicare? 65 is is the age. And so, um, it, and, and I always recommend that someone, when you get that, you know, get there, Rex and I, we don't do Medicare. We know enough to be, you know, dangerous, <laughs> but, but and, and enough to, I guess, push you in the right direction. Um, but, but you should probably work with a Medicare professional, someone who is, you know, independent, able to represent, you know, the various companies and help you understand what options you have. Where do I find a Medicare professional? Because I see people with have, say, for instance, a financial business or an insurance business, but I don't necessarily see signs everywhere for Medicare business professionals. Are they out there everywhere? Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're okay. absolutely out there. And, and we have a few that we, we like to recommend and, okay. and, and work with. Um, I'd say when you're looking for a Medicare professional, make sure, make sure that they're able to offer a full suite of, of different options um, and, and make sure that they, they're able to explain it well to you. There's unfortunately not a lot of credentialing and licensing that goes into Medicare. It's, it's fairly easy to get into. Um, and so, so yeah. Just make, writing that down so I can have a side I, hustle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I find it interesting that some of the specialists that, that work on, on Medicare, it's, it's just like an investment, some financial planning that. Sometimes you'll have somebody that says, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm an expert, right? And, and I'm an independent. But really all they're doing is working on the Medicare Advantage plans. Mm -hmm. And they're not working on traditional Medicare Part B, C, and D, and, and the different plans within Part B um, as far as that's concerned. And, and so I think when you're looking for somebody that specializes in Medicare, that's one of the questions I think you want to ask is, is do they handle all aspects? Meaning, will they look at both traditional as well as the advantage plans, help you compare and contrast the two, look at your prescriptions, look at your doctors, 
and, and look at what those needs might be over the next 12 months, keeping in mind that every year there is an open enrollment period. Every year you, you have the ability to change. However, typically once you change, then lots of times the plan that you're leaving may not be available in the future. And mm -hmm. so you do want to make sure that when you're, you're making a change that you're, you're really evaluating that well. Okay. And, and that they can cover the vastness of Medicare, but they're also not stepping way far outside their sandbox. And they're also offering your home insurance, your auto insurance, mm -hmm. your, you know, your financial planning. I mean, podcast editing skills. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> you hot really yoga. Want... <laughs> yeah. Hot yoga. You know, you don't know. <laughs> you want someone who's focused in and, and is that's what they're doing. Health insurance, Medicare, that is their world. That's what they live, eat, breathe. Um, and, 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 but they, they're also able to cover the breadth of that, of that topic. Okay. Very good. Um, social security, uh, when can I file for social security? We get a lot of questions on social security. So the earliest you can file is age 62, unless you're a widow or widower, then you can actually file as soon as age 60. Um, but widow or remarried? Depends. So, so depends. depends on your age, actually. Okay. Yeah, really good question. So if you're younger than 60 and you remarry, that actually changes what you're eligible for in benefits. After age 60, you can actually remarry. Um, but, but there's a few things to consider, right? Even though you're 62, if you're still working, it makes it really hard to get benefits. There's penalties involved. In fact, Social Security, they call it double dipping. And the entire objective of, of these double dipping rules is to make it so that if you're working prior to your full retirement age, which is typically between 66 and age 67, then you can't also take a, a regular benefit. Um, so what they do is anything you make above this year's limit is $21,240. So anything above that $21,000, you're penalized $1 for every $2 that you make. Okay. So, um, Okay, so I doubt uh, Rip Charlie Munger. Um, yeah. Uh, so I'm, I doubt he was taking Social Security. Uh, I don't. I don't know. Why Maybe. would you think he wouldn't be taking? I don't Social know. Security? I don't because he does he need it? I don't know. But my that's my question is I mean, was he technically working? Because he was technically working until ninety nine essentially. Yeah. So he he was absolutely working. Right. He he was a smart man. Um, and so Charlie, you know, he he'd been an attorney for a long time. And, and then had been associated with, you know, with Warren for, for a long time as well through Berkshire Hathaway. And, and I don't, I don't remember the age. There's a book, he, he has a book out and I, I don't remember the age that he retired from being, being an attorney, but, um, but I'm, I'm highly confident that he took social security, um, mm. because he could, right? right. And he's, if he's anything, he's a capitalist at heart. And if the government's going to sit there and, and say, Hey, here's your benefit, here's your money. You know, I'm sure he, he probably took that. Now he may have turned around and given it away. He may have turned around and invested it. Who knows? Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm highly confident that he was taking social security. But would have, would have waited until his full retirement age. You know, I don't know. Um, he would have waited until either his full retirement age, if he was still working as an attorney. Right. Um, if, you know, and, and even through, I don't know what his, his financial situation was with Berkshire Hathaway. As far as if he was, you know, a, a, like an employee, a, a W2 or, employee, yeah. or if he was getting 1099 or, you know, I don't know what that situation was. And that can impact however that situation is, whether your benefits are being reduced by, you know, by a dollar for every $2 that you make hmm. over the, over the earnings limit. Interesting. So, anyway. yeah, but, but traditional, traditional W2 work, if you're making over that 21,240, you do the math on that, 
your benefit gets eaten up really, really quickly. And so, yeah, so, so that penalty is there. And so really, I guess the, the short answer is when can I file and when can I take social security? It's either age 62 or whenever you retire, whichever is later. Okay. Uh, okay. Where is my, when is my social security taxed up to? Depends on your earnings. And this is actually done. So penalties are done on an individual level. But the, the taxes are done on whatever, however you're filing taxes, right? So if you're single, then obviously it's just you. If you're married filing jointly, it comes down to your household income. And so there, there are different phases. And, and th- these are kind of interesting. You've got, so if you, and I'm just going to throw some numbers out, and these unfortunately have not been indexed for inflation. And so they used to be really, really high, you know, so it wouldn't really impact very many people. Now almost everybody hits this. And so married filing jointly if you make less than $32,000, then, then you actually your social security is tax-free. So that's really nice. If you make more than 32, but less than 44, then it's half of it is taxable, not ta- taxed away, okay, wait, but half you, goes to the tax. How is, what tax. do you mean make? So is this like, cause you're drawing down from retirement plus social security, plus maybe you're working a job. Like what is, what is, cause the, the social security itself isn't taxed. That income isn't taxed, right? Or it is. So that's in the calculation. And that okay. actually is, is somewhat complex. So you take your social security earnings. Let's say you're receiving $20,000 of social security earnings. You take that, divide it by two, and that's part of the calculation. Then you add that to other income. So other W-2 income, um, distributions from IRAs, not Roth IRAs, but traditional IRAs oh, right. would, would count as income. And, and there are a few things on there that can run that income. Um, but yeah, that, that's how you go in, that's how you calculate in this bracket, what is taxable. And then from there you determine how much of your social security is taxable. Is it 50%, zero, 50% or 85% taxable? Okay. Interesting. We are not CPAs. I just feel like we should have a quick <laughs> That's true. <laughs> right well, that's, well, that's, that's true, but th- there are also <laughs> rules that are public, right? There so are. these are the public rules that are on the books. There are. So, and, okay. and we do understand those rules and we do need to make sure that the our clients and, and the public understand that because there is a common misconception that that Social Security is is all taxed. And the reality is it's not all taxed. Only part of it runs through your tax bracket. Mm. The question becomes, is it 50 percent or 85 percent that's running through your tax bracket? And then on top of that, you have state taxes. And depending upon which state you live in will depend upon how they view Social Security. And so in a, in a state like Utah, it you know, Utah taxes Social Security currently. It's under uh, review. And so our Congress is looking at that to, to try and decide if they want to make that tax-free income as far as Social Security, it, such as in states uh, like Florida, right, where they don't tax Social Security for state tax purposes. Oh, I wonder why some of your retired people live there. I wonder. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Okay. Okay. And then uh, Social Security spousal benefits. When can a spouse file for benefits? Uh, when do they st- stop growing? What is that? The spouse probably stopped growing around 17, 18 years old. Uh, can I receive <laughs> spousal benefits if I'm not married? Okay. Let's talk about the spousal benefits. Yeah. So a lot of good, a lot of good topics there. Um, so you can a spouse, and this is something I've seen this actually a couple times where people didn't know that they could file on their spousal benefit while the spouse was still alive. Mm. example, I've literally seen this twice where, where a spouse was like, yeah, I, you know, I stayed, I raised the kids. I didn't really have a work earnings history. They got their social security statement and said, you know, you don't <laughs> qualify for benefits yet. 
Um, and, and so they just didn't do anything, even though they were married to a spouse who had a full earnings record. Well, had they known, they could have gone to Social Security, said, hey, hey, we're married and qualified for up to half of that spouse's full retirement age benefit, which, you know, is, could be $1,000, $1,500 a month mm-hmm. and just missed it. Just didn't file. Found out later, right? We talked to them like, holy cow, you need to file for this. And and unfortunately, Social Security, they go back 10 years and pay. pay no, right? They go so back they don't months. give you a heads up, obviously, either. Like They don't send a letter out saying, hey, by the way, you might qualify. For- not always. Sometimes, right? Like it depends on the event. Sometimes they'll notify you, but not always. And so it's up to the individuals to understand, you know, what Social Security benefits they qualify for. Yeah, t- typically they don't um, notify you, but if you do go in and you know schedule an appointment with the Social Security Administration office or call in, then then a lot of the the representatives at this point are asking some of those questions, um, such as have you been married before? Are you divorced? And uh, and you know how long were you married? When did you get remarried? And so that they can kind of help you along that way. I mean they 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 really want to help. Some just have more experience of doing that than others. Right. So, and okay. and you don't need to be actively married to get a spousal benefit. In fact, if you know if you had one person who was married to five other individuals, at least as long as each of those individuals had a ten year marriage, each of those other individuals could file on that that one single person's benefit, and and it's not impacting anybody else's benefits. And so it's it's something to make sure that you're you're aware of. Um, the other thing too is is once that that original the one spouse passes, then all those surviving spouses benefits go up, and and so yeah, kind of a lot a lot of information there. One of the benefits of working with an advisor is is so that we can go through it because there's so many different little caveats and trails to go down. Um, but yeah, so so social security, if you're married ten years, or were married ten years, you didn't get remarried. Um, before 60, those are, those are some things to make sure you pay attention to. And this is, again, just to bring it back to the topic of the podcast, uh, you know, you should think about these things about five to 10 years. So you can meet with these, you don't have to meet with these people when you, right when you turn 65 or whatever, like you can think about these things prior to's. Yeah. Hopefully okay. you do. Yeah. yeah. I think it's good to start talking, having these questions and, and having these discussions when you're starting to enter into your fifties. Mm-hmm. Right. So that you, you have enough time to research and, and think about it and, and look at different, you know, possibilities such as, should I work past 62? Should I retire then? Should I work till 65? Should I go part-time when I'm 62 and stay under that earnings limit and take Social Security? What, what do I want? And, mm-hmm. and kind of go through those different scenarios. So, What happens if one partner is 65 and the other partner is 35? Well, they have names for that, which I won't repeat <laughs> on the podcast. Saying. <laughs> <Yeah>. Happens. <laughs> Yeah, so it's I mean you still have your own earnings benefit, right? And so yeah. the the older person will file when they hit full retirement age. Um the the younger um you know when they get to 62 in a 30-year age difference, <laughs> right? Their husband's 92 or their wife is 92, depending upon which direction that went. And and so chances are they're going to be, you know, filing early. That would be the odds. <laughs> okay. And so I don't know. We'd have to look at that. <laughs> but you don't see that a lot in your, no. in your practice. We see it on occasions. Maybe not that big of an age spread, but but, but we definitely 10 see- 10 to 15. Yeah, maybe. we definitely see yeah. 10 to 15 on, right. on a fairly regular basis. Yeah. Right. Also, the, the spousal benefit stops growing at age 67. So a spouse can take it as early as age 62, but it's a reduced benefit. So it, the 50% benefit is then further reduced 
And, and so that they can delay taking it until their full retirement age, 66 or 67, and take up to 50% of the spousal benefit. But after that, it stops growing. So if they wait till 68 or 69 or 70, there's, there's really no benefit to that. And so you want to make sure that spousal benefits are taken prior to them hitting their full retirement or at their full retirement age. Okay. Let's talk distribution strategies and needs. How can I figure out how much I'll need uh, and when I will need it? What is the, what is the math equation? I'm sure it's a simple one. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> yeah, that's that's very unique for everybody, right? It's it's a matter of running through cash flows and projected cash flows. I mean, AI will do it for me, so I don't even know. And AI yeah. is is I mean, I found AI on the internet, and so it's got to be true. It's gonna be right? true, yeah. And they know you personally, right? So if you type in Rex, it's, it's Rex, it did. Rex at planwithbaxter.com, it'll know. Okay. Yeah, it called me a nickname. It, so. Oh wow. <laughs> So I, I enjoy because our 401k plans, right? They all have these little cute AI. It's probably not AI, but it's just cute algorithms, right? That say, hey, you're going to retire on this much, right? If you mm, yeah. based on your savings and based on this. And it's fun to go in and actually read what those assumptions are because they're all over the place, right? And, and you can't blame it because, man, what was your earnings history? Does it really know? Of course it doesn't. It's just taking your payroll number, right? And so there's there's a lot of different things that go into it. But like Rex said, chiefly, the most important thing is is understanding, it's all relative, right? I get asked all the time, well, how much should I have for retirement? The answer is it just depends, right? Like I've literally seen- Okay, people, so what's the first question you ask somebody then? Like how, like how do you get to how much they're gonna need? That's great. Yeah. So really our first, generally our first appointment, we're getting, we're collecting all of the information because, because to your point, we don't know, right? Mm -hmm. Like I can't look at you and like, look at your statement and be like, yeah, 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 let's do, you know, like <laughs> it just, uh, it's not that easy. And so we'll sit down with someone. We'll say, all right, what, what do we need? You know, where, what's your house worth? What, how much payment do you have? How, how long will that payment go? Is that going to go into retirement deeply or will it be paid off soon? How much debt do you have? Um, where's your savings at? What, you know, I mean, all of these questions we will literally go through, we'll be able to calculate their net worth. We'll be able to look at where income is coming from and where income is going. And once we gather those bearings, then we can understand and say, all right, if you are living on an after tax 6,000 or 8,000, whatever the dollar is, dollars per month, and we can take that number, project it, adjust it for inflation, and then we can start to really make some recommendations. Hmm. Then we can decide how much are we pulling out of retirement accounts? When do we need it pulled out of retirement accounts? And and that's when, when the, all the magic really happens. Yeah, that, that first meeting is really a discovery meeting, right? To where we're trying to build out a balance sheet, trying to figure out what you own, where you own it, how it's titled. We're trying to figure out what you owe, who you owe it to, how long you're going to owe it. Um, and then we kind of back into what we think you're spending. Um, is, is how we end up doing that. And so, you know, once, once we get to that point, then we can start projecting things out. And when we get to distributions, when it, when it, you know, we're looking at retirement, whatever age that may be for you, then, then we're trying to figure out, you know, where's the most tax efficient place to pull that from. And, and, you know, does it make more sense to pull and, and pay taxes at this point? Does it, does it not? Um, and so that's where we're going through those different decisions as, as we're going through. But, but typically when we're reaching this pre-retirement stage, you know, when you're 50, we're projecting this out to when you're a hundred, right? And so we're looking at that even in, in your early fifties 
as to what that distribution is going to look like and where it's going to come from. So that when it does come to that retirement, because retirement's a scary thing for a lot of people. And, and we want you to be really confident in your decision as far as when, you know, when you have the ability to retire. And so, I mean, to us or to, to, to us, retirement means the, the flexibility or financial freedom, as you've coined it in the past, mm-hmm. having the ability to make that decision of do I want to continue to work or don't I? I saw an argument online, and uh, if you know, you know. Okay, that's all I'll say. And the argument was over. Uh, what is the appropriate number that you percentage that you should draw from your retirement each year? And so um, it was uh, ba- probably based on what the average annual uh, interest is. Correct, like what you guys probably use eight uh, percent or something. Um, and so you could, so the idea is that well, you can draw down six percent and be fine. Um, and then then there this was a big deal online. Like people were fighting over this. And so do you guys have opinions on what the drawdown percentage should be around? Yeah, we we always have opinions. <laughs> yeah, okay. Oh, I know. So, That's why you're here. Yeah, yeah. Pe- people get fiery. People get yeah. hot, right? They they have their strong opinions on on that. And I think it I think it really depends on what your goal is, right? We have some some clients we've talked about this in the past to where their goal is to to bounce that last check, right? Yeah. And so um if somebody has the goal of not necessarily passing on a lot of money, then they probably can handle a slightly higher distribution rate. And so is that 4% or 5% or where does that go? And, and how, what is your risk tolerance? How, you know, how flexible are you in being able to tone down that percentage if we get into an extremely negative economic cycle that impacts the markets and, and your holdings? If you, could, if you have the flexibility to turn that down, then, then you might be able to turn it back up during different times mm. you know, throughout, throughout your retirement. Whereas other people say, well, I really want to be able to pass on some of this and I want, and I'm more conservative and I don't ever want to, to risk the chance of outliving my money. And if you don't want to outlive your money, then we need to make sure that the distribution rate is lower than your growth rate minus inflation and taxes, right? Because otherwise you're going to be going backwards and you're going to run that risk of, of running out of money. Mm. And so those are all calculations that, that we end up running through and going through different you know, scenarios to where we say, well, what happens if you take an extra $500? What happens if you take, you know, an extra 1%? This is what that looks like, right? Or what if you do that for the first five years of your retirement and turn it off, which can be really, really dangerous because then you get accustomed to having that, right? And and it's funny, people think that they're really, really mental giants and that they're strong enough to, to handle that. <laughs> and let me just be the first to tell you, you're probably not. Wait, we're not? Yeah. So, yeah. I, I think there's some other confusion too, because you see financial products out there that will advertise like, hey, we can give you a 6% distribution rate on your money, which is far greater than four. But what you don't realize is that sometimes those calculations, most times those calculations, they're not adjusting for inflation. So it's 6% on today's rate, and that's going to be a flat. A, 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 a flat distribution for the rest of your life. So 30 years from now, you know, inflation is doubled, right? The, the, or, or cut in half the value of the dollar. Mm. And, and all of a sudden, you know, that. So that wait, what's the 6% from? based on? It's not based on, I thought it was based on the, um, like 6% of your uh, the money that you have in savings. So typically the argument is 4% is the big number, right? Okay. There, there are studies after studies that said, hey, if you do 4% that you're going to be set. And, and the assumptions behind the 4% are that, let's say for easy numbers, let's say you got a million dollars, right? 
and you take a 4% distribution, that's $40,000 per year. The assumption is then that the next year, that amount will grow. You take 4% out, the markets will grow more than 4%. You take 4% again, but it's adjusted higher for inflation. So rather than 40,000 next year, you're actually taking 41 or 42,000. And then the year after that, 42 or 43, right? Mm -hmm. And it's just adjusting with inflation. And, and so, you know, 4% historically, you know, if you look in financial finance 101 textbooks, that's like the 4%. Mm -hmm. But then you get all these financial products that come in, like, we'll give you 6%, right? So if you've got a million bucks, we'll give you $60,000 a year, but never adjust it for inflation. Well, that's great. The first, you know, well, decade. To confuse that even further, when a lot of products out there, you have to be really careful what products you're using is sometimes that 6% distribution rate is a distribution, right? That's not income, it's a distribution. So part of that may be your principal. Mm -hmm. So part of that distribution is is interest, and part of that may be principal, which means that your principal is, is depleting year after year after year on certain products. And and so there's actually a lot of a, a lot of issues. I, I saw one to where the president is is looking at trying to implement additional fiduciary rules and and guidance and things like that, specifically around some insurance products that as far as the terminology and how those are worded and, and you know, how, how people can, can kind of leverage those. So. And not get duped. Okay. So this is good. Um, allocation. So how do I know what to invest in as I approach retirement? Different for everyone. Right. And, and I like to tell people that there's two main risk factors that we like to take into consideration. First is the plan risk. Right. So let's take your emotions out of it. What can your plan handle? How much risk can we take? And when I say how much risk, I mean, like, how, how much can we have exposed to like the stock market? Right. And why do we want to expose the stock market? Well, historically speaking, that's grown faster than most other asset classes. And so we like to invest, you know, have more in that. But there's a certain amount, you know, would we ever say, hey, let's just put it all in the stock market because that's gotten the best return? At first, it sounds right. But, but the problem is, is that when the stock market crashes, you still need to take distributions. You still need to be able to live. You still need to be able to fund Christmas, right? You need to do all these things. And so we've got to build your plan such that we've got backup assets, right? Assets that aren't going to be as volatile that we can draw on during down, down markets. And so, you know, it, it, so the first is, is how, much can your, how much risk can your plan take versus safety? And then the second one is your guts, right? How, how much can you take emotionally? Your plan might be just fine. I've seen this plenty of times, right? Where people are in a panic and I'm like, this is fine. This works out. And this is how it works out, right? There's no way that we can't get through this. But emotionally, they're like, I just can't, like the, the numbers, right? I can't watch my statement, see my hard-earned dollars moving around. And so, so for those clients, you need to be a little bit more safe, right? Even though their plan could take it, they emotionally don't want that ride. And, and, and so what, you know, we can work around that. The problem is we don't get as much rate of return, right? Which means we can't, you know, distribute as much in retirement. We just need to get into safer assets that don't give as high rate of return, but also in exchange don't have that volatility. So those are two main ones, plan risk versus emotional risk. Okay. Rex. I agree. I agree. No, <laughs> so I, I, I think that's right on. And I think that, you know, we had, we were talking before we, we went live about one of our other podcasts, um, you know, M Money Mind Games and talking about the psychology of money and talking about, you know, how people act and react. But one of, one of the most dangerous things that you can do is, is, have, is look at a plan and somebody's out there projecting 7, 8, 9% rates of return 
over your over your lifetime and and not really going through what the risk of that looks like and running into a 2008 kind of an event to where the market's down 40%, your accounts are down 30 and you dealing with the emotional dynamics of that and panicking and making the exact wrong decision at the wrong time and selling out and then you've you've really just kind of blown up the entire financial plan and because you're not going to be able to recover and because you're not going to be able to recover then you're dealing with a smaller asset base to base that income stream off of and and so it's going to have long long lasting repercussions mm. and so the one of the most dangerous things is to go into this and only look at one of the types of risk which is plan risk and say okay my plan makes it I'm good and ignoring the emotional risk i think the emotion they're they're equally weighted risks don't ignore one for the benefit of the other make sure that you're running through both Brandon, more numbers. Yeah, so I, I like these stats for two reasons. First of all, I think it's interesting. Second of all, it shows how easily manipulated manipulated um, stats can be. So this is actually the Financial Times put this out and, and said commercial real estate loans that are past due in the U.S. jumped 30% in the third quarter. I mean, and so bank reg data actually had the, the main stats. That sounds terrifying, right? What commercial real estate loans past due jump thirty? That means like all these commercial spaces, thirty percent more are are past due. Right? Like that's a, you know, is the economy coming to an end? It's not a good sign. Um, but then at the end of it, they they put you know, despite the rise, just one point five percent of property casual or commercial property loans were past due. So like it's up thirty percent. But it's still sitting at one point five percent, or actually delinquent of the total of the total of all okay. of the loans, okay. right? And so it, it's kind of one. That I, I get that all the time. People are like, "Oh, credit card debt is is higher than it's ever been." Well, that's true, but you know, relative if you look at the charts, the graphs relative to income, it's actually in a really healthy spot. Mm. And so, anyway, I thought that was kind of an interesting. It'll be interesting. yeah. Stats can scare you. Yeah, you, you don't get the full picture there. Uh, interesting. Did we talk about maximizing tax brackets yet? In no. In and uh, oh, that's actually Roth conversion strategies. I think I hey, skipped. Hey, kind of the there. same thing. Okay, All they right. go hand in hand. Hand right in hand. There. All right, hand let's, in hand. let's do that then. So sticking with our phases, right? Yeah. And and as you approach retirement, and this is probably one that that we might see also pop up in in just post retirement or retirement. Um, but you want to make sure that you're taking advantage of of full tax brackets. And so what we can do, and it's really, really neat when it, let's say you've got a bunch of money in your 401k and let's say, you know, this year you're married filing jointly. Let's just say you're making a hundred thousand dollars and the threshold before you go into the 22 and there's some variance to it, right? But the threshold before you hit the 22% bracket is let's call it 117,000 roughly. That's about where it is for 2023. And you're making a hundred thousand. We can convert 17,000 and stay in the 12% bracket. And we convert that over to Roth, we have to pay taxes on that, but then it's completely tax-free for and grows tax-free for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And so that can be an incredibly powerful strategy. Now, some people get way excited and they're like, I'm gonna convert all, but, but it ultimately comes down to what's our marginal tax bracket now, right? And we can help people calculate that. And where do we think you'll be tax bracket-wise in the future? So if you're pre-retirement, I see all the time people in their 50s like getting all excited about a Roth IRA, and I can clearly see they're in the highest tax bracket they're ever going to be in in their whole life. 
right? You don't know what Congress is going to do, but it kind of seems like it, right? You can sure. look and, and they're getting excited about Roth. I'm like, why, why wouldn't we just defer the tax, right? And, and do a pre-tax contribution and pay taxes when we're in a lower bracket in retirement. Wait, do, do taxes ever go down? Yeah. They did. They went down in, yeah. for some people, they went down yeah. in 2016, right? See? Okay. And now in, at the end of 2025, they, they might sunset, jump up. They might jump right back up. Yeah. But yeah, t- tax brackets will will change over time, right? So back in, coming out of World War II, back in 1950 or 51, the top tax bracket was like 91%, 92% was the top tax bracket. Today's top tax bracket is 37%. So mm. do they ever come, well, they went from 92 to 37. That's a pretty big yeah. you know, drop yeah. as far as, as brackets. So, you know, they Congress does play around with that um, fairly frequently. And and kind of mess around with deductions. What can we deduct? What can't we deduct? And and what are the caps and limits? And and so that's why we work so closely with the CPA because you know I I know enough to to try and make sure we ask the right questions. But that's not my lane, right? And and my lane is investments and financial planning and and working down those lanes, not the accounting. So we'll work very closely with the CPA to say, okay, this is where we think the marginal bracket is. Can you confirm? Once you confirm, great, we think we have X amount of room in order to, you know, do a Roth conversion. You know, do you agree? They'll look at it, you know, no, you're wrong. You've got an extra five or, or you know, shorten that by five because it's a little too tight. And, and we'll kind of have those discussions. And I can't tell you how many of those conversations I've started, but I don't know that I've ever had an accountant call me and be like, hey, Brandon, I've been thinking about, right? Like, like accountants typically are so focused on, and I'm not hating on accountants, but oftentimes they're so focused on trying to get the best tax return today and, and get the most money back today that they don't pull back and look at the full picture and project out what a client's going to do in 10 years. And, and so that's where having a good financial advisor, we can flag, like Rick said, we can flag these things and say, hey, this is something we should consider. And then we work in tandem with an accountant to, to calculate that. One other point, you say tax brackets don't go down. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But individual situations absolutely change. Mm. And you might have a year where one spouse retires or takes a hiatus to take care of a you know loved one or whatever it is. And all of a sudden your tax, your income goes from these high levels and we have one year or two years where it's low. Man, that's a perfect time to really lock in those lower tax brackets, maximize those and, and then move forward. Rex, you mentioned that laws change. And uh, so if you're, what are the, what are the risks risks on distribution during retirement that say you've started taking a social security distribution or, or, or a Roth distribution and then, and then Congress goes and changes the law. Will that affect in real time your distributions? Like how, like are any, in, in other words, is anything grandfathered in which ones are subject to change? How does that work? Yeah, it's, it's fairly rare for it to impact, to have an immediate impact mm-hmm. or a retroactive impact. Back okay. to the first of the year, typically. Most of the time, and it's not always, but most of the time, Congress will make those kinds of changes be effective for the following tax year, um, or they may grandfather certain people in. A lot of people are afraid that at some point they're going to begin taxing Roth IRAs again, which would be double taxation, which I, I think is highly, highly unlikely. Mm. And and so, but that's one of the fears that people have. And, and so, you know, I, I think the thing that they, could do at some point. I don't, I don't think they will, but the thing that they could do at some point is they could say, okay, we're, we're closing this program down. Any earnings from this date forward 
you know, and they would put some date mm-hmm. five years out in the future, we'll be, we'll have to start paying this, you know, wealth tax or something else, mm-hmm. right? Some Something to where they're taxing some of the growth at some stage. Mm-hmm. Again, highly, highly unlikely that that ever gets passed. I'm sure they're looking at that and like, but, do you know how much money we're missing out on on taxes on this Roth IRA? <laughs> yeah, well, but at the same time, I, you know, there's very few congressmen and senators that don't have Roth IRAs. So, yeah, there we you go. Know, so I'm not saying that there's any self-dealing there, but my guess is- that They're self-voting like, for sure. Yeah. I mean, he was like, well, I don't know. Do I want to harm myself with this vote? Like, Right, I, I voted for myself, right? Yeah, there you go. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, very interesting. Okay, so uh, do you want to touch on annuities, Brandon? Uh, we we kind of did. Okay. I, I guess just at a high level, I think it's especially this phase in life, I clients just get bombarded with dinners and, and all these things. and and, you know, annuities are some of the most complex financial instruments we deal with. Sometimes they make sense. Most, most times we can get around it and, and actually get better returns elsewhere. But it kind of comes back to the individual. You know, how, how much risk can they take? How, how comfortable are they in the markets? And so you just really, really need to be careful because of, of all the times a client comes in, meets with me and like, this just isn't working. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I thought I signed up for one thing off so many times it's an annuity or it's a life insurance product that they signed up for they didn't understand you know what was in it and now they're stuck with surrender fees and low growth and and all those things so you got to be really really careful with those there there's a lot of different kinds of annuities right you have immediate annuities you have variable annuities fixed annuities index fixed annuities and and so there's a lot of different kinds and i know i've i've kind of put off doing a podcast specifically on annuities and mainly it's because it might be a snore fest. <laughs> <laughs> but you wouldn't believe the amount of emails no. we got, people asking for annuity podcast. I'm just kidding. I don't think we've got one. So, yeah. <laughs> but, but yet they are sold a lot. Yeah. There are a lot of people that, that buy annuities, a lot of advisors that sell annuities, and, and we're licensed to sell them. We do use annuities when they make sense and when they're appropriate. But too frequently, it's one of those products that tends to get in my opinion, overutilized for too many situations. Mm. And, and a lot of that is that I, unfortunately, a lot of the, the positives about annuities tend to get, I don't know if they're overemphasized or if that's just what sticks from the conversation into the client's head is, is the positives and, and they just kind of glance over the negatives. So I don't know where that's coming from necessarily. And I'm not going to make a, a judgment on that, but but at some point we may want to do an, an annuity specific, but I think, I think an interesting thing as far as pre-retirement and that phase and looking at, and looking at, you know, income distributions, looking at buckets that we save in, that is, that is a great time to evaluate, to see if annuities are a good fit for you or not, to see if you meet the criteria to where they make sense. And, and again, I'm with Brandon to where the vast majority of the time, the answer is no, they don't make sense. And so for those that are listening, you know, don't take this as, oh, I should, Rex said I should go, you know, look at annuities, buy an annuity. <laughs> that is not what I'm saying. <laughs> and so I just want to be overly clear about that. Um, but I do think that this is the stage of life that you should be evaluating that, that you should be becoming educated about the complexities of annuities because insurance products just in general are some of the most sophisticated products that we deal with. And 
there's so many little gotchas inside of those to where, oh, we're going to pay you this distribution rate. But if your balance goes under this amount, then your distribution rate goes down to this. Mm. And and that's in the fine print, right? And mm. and that's typically glanced over and, oh, that'll never happen. Well, never is a big word, mm. right? And I know it's, you know, it's never and always are, are extremely big words. And so we've seen enough things throughout life that we don't want to use those. Well, in this this week alone, I was a client. They were sold an annuity years back. And, and she's like, I don't know. He just can't. Like he doesn't make sense. He doesn't, he can't tell me which, you know, what to, and so I was looking at these options and they were horrendous. Like literally you could invest in the S&P 500, but you had a 1.5% cap. You literally couldn't make more than 1.5% per year. Like that, that's the worst term ever. Like, But it, it was guaranteed? No, it wasn't even guaranteed. Oh. I mean, I'm sure the floor was, right? Yeah, yeah but, but who cared? 1.5, I can get like, three times that in a CD, mm. you know, and, and uh, then the other, op- there was another option where it didn't have a cap. So that was good. But then they only gave you 11% participation rate. So if the market did 10, you end up at 1.1%. I mean, those are the things that you've got to be looking at. Like, what are my sub account options, you know, and, and sure it gives you market growth, but what is that market growth? If I can't go out and buy any fund out there, I have to use your select, you know, seven options that are, have pigeonholed me to where the point I, I won't be able to make any money. Mm. And so there's just so many little gotchas, like Rex said, that you got to be really careful. We, we might need a, an annuity jargon podcast, oh, right? No, did I, did participation I rates, <laughs> yeah, sub-accounts, no. Oh, no. Right? <laughs> right? I mean, but it's right. true. There's so much jargon in insurance products just in general. I mean, just in investments, in the investment yeah. world, there's a ton of jargon. But, but then you've got all this sub-jargon right inside of inside of insurance products fine print jargon yeah Yeah. that that very few people understand or they may they may have an idea of what it means a concept but they may not still have a full understanding and and you know it's it's never been more important to understand you know what your money is doing how it's working for you what you're buying what you're putting it into what the purpose of it is and and where you're headed with it and so it's extremely important to make sure that you understand. So if you if you don't or you're concerned that that you know you've heard jargon and you can you can regurgitate the jargon to me but you have no idea what it means, then you should reach out. We should have a conversation. Very good. All right, to wrap things up here, let's talk about long-term care or nursing home insurance. How can I make sure I'm taken care of in the event of an extended nursing home stay? I hear that's not cheap. It's not yeah. it's so so much so that it scared all the insurance companies. I mean, it, it, 10 years ago, there were actually quite a few companies offering a variety of products that were somewhat competitive. But what we've seen is, is that, that there are a lot fewer, dramatically fewer insurance companies that are still willing to issue that. Now we can go out, we can get a policy, um, but they're expensive. You know, they're really expensive. And just to clarify, so this is if you go into a nursing home, right? And you don't, and you're unable to do so many daily habits, right? Like dressing yourself or bathing or getting food or all, any of those things, then these kick in and they pay a certain amount out, right? So that you can help afford these facilities. But man, they're just, these policies are so expensive now. And so people will do, you know, they'll buy a life insurance policy and attach a rider on with it. But, but the problem is a lot of these have some pretty low caps on the benefits, 
meaning that, yeah, you're covered, but we're only going to pay up to $50,000 of benefit or $100,000 of benefit or, you know, and relative to the premium that you're paying, most times it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Not always, but most times it doesn't make sense. And so what we're seeing a lot of now, now that these insurance companies have said, holy cow, this, this is expensive, you know, I've gotten out. We're seeing a lot more clients just self-insuring where you build up that retirement savings a little bit extra so that if a spouse were to go into a care facility or both of you go into a care facility, you can afford to, to cover that cost and continue the other retirement expenses. Well, and again, that comes, that comes back to your distribution rates too, right? Because if, if all of a sudden you have a, an elevated distribution rate and, and it, it, you know, mid, mid 80s, early 90s, you end up going into a, a long-term care facility, a skilled nursing facility or a mental uh, facility because of dementia or Alzheimer's or, or one of these terrible diseases, and you're in there for five or six years and you did early high distribution rates, then all of a sudden we don't have the capital there in order to to afford that. And so we spend down the capital and then we end up going on government assistance. We end up utilizing Medicaid as opposed to Medicare. And sometimes those facilities, you know, you don't get the same the same perks, right? Sometimes you're sharing a bedroom or sharing, you know, TVs and and maybe a different level of care than than if you've planned for it in advance. And and mm-hmm. so that's but again, I think that the sweet spot for evaluating that is pre-retirement. I still think the sweet spot of of looking at quotes and looking at different insurance products to cover that versus self-insuring is still in that early 50s stage because that's typically where you're going to get the the lowest insurance cost, um, even though you're going to have it for a prolonged period of time. That's typically where where that sweet spot is. And so I think it's important to evaluate and make a good, conscious, educated decision on what your plans are if you end up in a long-term care facility or your spouse or both of you, or if we're going to stay in our home and we're going to bring some some care facility in, into our house, not care facility, but a care person that's doing either round-the-clock care or eight hours a day care. And that gets extremely expensive mm. when you start bringing somebody into your home for that kind of private care. And and so we do want to make sure that, you know, whatever your goal is, however you want to do that, that, that we've planned for that and we've looked at it. I, I know in an ideal world, right, most people want to want to live in their home as long as they can. They want to pass away in their sleep, you know, in their own bed. And, and that's great. I hope that works out for you. Right. But chances are it doesn't work out quite as perfect as as you hope. And so it's our job to help you plan for that. And that's the purpose of that cushion in the financial planning, because it, the other, yeah, sure, we can get on Medicaid, right? But before we do that, we have to drain all of the assets down almost to zero. And then, yeah, now we're on Medicaid. They're paying for one person's care. Then they pass away. What does the surviving spouse do, right? They're left with nothing. Or what happens if, if one spouse passes away prematurely and all of a sudden we lose their social security benefit and then we also lose the tax filing status? And so there's a lot, there's a lot of things that heading into retirement when we're in our fifties that we need to position such that, you know, not only can we handle the planned retirement distributions, but also plan the what ifs of long-term care need of, of premature death and things like that. And that's where all of this really comes together with a comprehensive plan is, is we can look at, all right, where, where do we need to be at, you know, account balance wise, cash flow wise, what about the what ifs? What if, what if the markets perform really well? Or what if they don't do well? What if we see inflation? And so pulling all of this together really is, I think, what helps people feel really confident going into retirement. 
I think, <clears throat> I think unfortunately, what I see a little bit is people that have failed to plan and, and they come to us in their mid seventies or, or early eighties. And they say, Hey, you know, my family member is saying that I should give them all my money. Right. So that it's not my asset, it's now their asset. And then I don't have to spend it all down. And, and, and there's certainly people that, that kind of espouse that theory of, of disposing of your assets, you know, more than five years. So it's not part of the Medicaid look back and it's not part of that. And, and they try and game the system, if you will. And if you've planned for that in advance, then, then there's ways to do that, that, that aren't quite as, as risky or, or walking lines that, that maybe you're not comfortable walking. Whereas lots of times when, when you wait too late, then you're just taking an enormous chance and, and it's just not worth that. Yeah. So. Okay, so Rex, Brandon, thanks so much for hanging out with us on this episode of Through the Pines. If you thought this was good, we have more. So there are more Through the Pines podcasts. Uh, go ahead and search Through the Pines on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. Also, you can follow us on our Facebook page at Through the Pines and our Instagram. I know it's weird. It's called Through the Pines on Instagram. I think it's Pines underscore podcast on Instagram. So uh, thanks for being here today. Again, you can find Brandon and Rex at planwithbaxter.com. That's planwithbaxter.com, B-A-X-T-E-R. Uh, this is it for this episode of Through the Pines, reminding you to use yesterday's dollars to finance tomorrow's dreams. <laughs>